New town, who dis? Teams on the move on this episode of Bullpen. Greetings and welcome to Bullpen, the show that takes a look at teams of yesterday but applies the roster rules of today. Which means if these teams were to play today, well, there'd be plenty of room for more relievers, but those benches would definitely be getting thinned out. The benches of six, seven players, and they gotta get shaved down to three. It's a little thought experiment I like to do, and I decided to start recording me doing it. We've had two major league teams change zip codes in about the past 50 years, so we're gonna take a look at those teams in their new stadiums for the first time. First up, the 1972 Texas Rangers. They spent the 1971 season, of course, as the Washington Senators 2.0. They brought along their manager, Ted Williams, but they also brought along their futility. They finished 54 and 100 in their first season in Texas. Not so great. The starting lineup for the Texas Rangers had Dick Billings behind the plate, Frank Howard at first base, Lenny Randall taking care of second, Toby Hara at short, Dave Nelson at third, the outfield of Tom Grieve, Joe Levito, and Ted Ford. Now notice I didn't say a DH. The DH came in in 1973, so this team doesn't have one. First thing we got to do is name our backup catcher. They had three gentlemen as backup catchers during the season. In fact, two of them got over 100 at-bats. Hal King had 150 at-bats, and Bill Fahey had 133 at-bats. Now, Hal King, well, he had more home runs, he had more RBIs, and he had a higher batting average. Technically. Hal King only hit 180 that season for Texas, while Bill Fahey hit 168. And if you think maybe the other guy was worth looking at, Ken Suarez, uh, he hit 152. So I guess the lesser of these three evils would be Hal King, as your backup catcher. There are no shortage of options for backup infielder on this team, but I didn't say they were good options. Vic Harris got into 186 at-bats and hit 140 with no home runs and only 10 RBIs. Dalton Jones also got into a fair amount of games, 151 at-bats, but also uh, hit 159. He did have four home runs, so when he did hit, he hit for some power. Jim Mason got a little time in at shortstop that season. He had 10 RBIs and hit 197. Ted Kubiak got into 46 games, 116 at-bats. Actually managed to hit 224, but no power. Tom Ragland and Marty Martinez and Jim Driscoll did not do so much better. In fact, Jim Driscoll had 20 at-bats and no hits for the 1972 Texas Rangers. So for backup infielder, something to give it to the young Ted Kubiak, except he wasn't that young. He was 30. I think I have to give it to the 28-year-old Dalton Jones, because he at least had some power. He had four home runs that year, even though he only hit 159. The position of backup outfielder gets a little dicier, though. They had Larry Bittner at age 25 deliver three home runs, 31 RBIs, and he hit 259, which wasn't too bad. They also had Elliot Maddox as a part-time outfielder in center field. He could bounce around. He had 10 RBIs and... 20 stolen bases, and he hit 252, so he didn't hit too bad either. There's also the young 21-year-old Jeff Burrows. He only hit 185, but he would do pretty well for the rest of his career. This was just his first little cup of coffee in the major league. So it comes down to either Larry Bittner or Elliot Maddox as your backup outfielder, and this is kind of a tough call. Larry Bittner at least has a little bit of pop, but Elliot Maddox has the speed. And looking at their other outfielders, 
yeah, they didn't have a lot of power out there to start with. Ted Ford led their outfielders with 14 home runs and 50 RBIs. In fact, he led the team with 14 home runs. This this was not a good team. I think I'd have to give it to... Oh, Larry Bittner can also play first base. And Frank Howard only got into 95 games that year as he was age 35. So I think you almost have to give this to Larry Bittner. But maybe if you're allowed to carry four bench players, you grab Elliot Maddox as well. Because Larry Bittner, like I said, can play the outfield and first base. In the pitching rotation, oh my goodness, this was also not great. Pete Broberg, Dick Bozeman, Rich Hand, Bill Gogoleski, and Don Stanhouse were your starting pitchers. Horacio Pena was your closer, with Mike Paul, Paul Lindblad, Jim Panther, and Casey Cox as your relievers. They only had one other reliever rack up over 50 innings pitched, and that was Jim Schellenbach, who got into about 22 games, six of them starts, pitched 57 innings with an ERA of 347. They also had cups of coffee from Steve Lawson, Jerry Janeski, Rich Hinton, Jim Rowland, and Jan Dukes. Was there any help on the way at AAA? Oh, there was plenty. As a matter of fact, all 18 pitchers who pitched for the 1972 Denver Bears made the major leagues. Every single one of them. I've never seen a minor league team where every pitcher eventually made the major leagues. That's kind of crazy. Steve Focalt had a good year down there at age 22. He had an ERA of 279 and a record of 3-2. and they also had a fair amount of their hitters also make the major league. So yeah, they had a very good minor league system, at least in the years to come. At Double A, they also had a couple guys who would eventually make the major leagues. Not the whole team, though, that's for sure. They had Jim Crimmel, Rick Waits, and Charlie Walters all down there. But they also had a couple guys like Frank Bollock, Jerry Bostick, and PJ Campbell who turned in pretty good performances, but never got the call to the major league club in Texas. And we're going to expand it this week for just a little bit because both teams I'm talking about also had one team that kept the old name in their minor leagues. The Texas Rangers played in 1972, but so did the 1972 Geneva Senators. Yes, they kept the name Senators for one more year. They actually had no pitchers who pitched for the Geneva Senators in 1972 make the major leagues, but they had a few guys make the major leagues who were hitters. Guys like Brian Doyle, Keith Smith, Bobby Thompson, and the human rain delay, Mike Hargrove. They would change their name the following season to the Geneva Twins, as they also switched to a Twins affiliation from Texas. So that's our look at the 1972 Texas Rangers. Now let's rock it forward to 2005 for the Washington Nationals. The previous season, they were the Montreal Expos, and they did not have a great season finishing things out in Montreal. 67 and 95, but they improved greatly on their way to Washington. They actually finished the season 81 and 81. Not too bad of a turnaround for the Washington Nationals under the management of Frank Robinson. Taking a look at their lineup, your inaugural lineup for the Washington Nationals Brian Schneider behind the plate, Nick Johnson at first base, Jose Vidro at second, Christian Guzman at short, Vinny Castilla at third, Marlon Bird, Brad Wilkerson, and Jose Guillen were manning the outfield. All right, and they had a lot of guys get into a fair amount of games. They had five bench players reach over 100 at-bats and several more get upwards of 50 or more. But, like I said, this is bullpen, and while 2004 did see 
you know, fairly large bullpens, not quite the level of 2019 teams. So we got to shave things down. First, we need a backup catcher. And while Keith Osick is one of my all-time favorite backup catchers, yeah, he only played in six games. So we got to give this one to Gary Bennett, who got into 68 games. Didn't do great, but he did, you know, hit 221, which was higher than any catcher for the 1972 Texas Rangers. He had a backup infielder, and this was a big year for 31-year-old Jamie Carroll. He actually hit 251 and got into 113 games. It'd be tough to argue against him as the team's backup infielder, although they also had Carlos Baerga, Junior Spivey, and a very young Ryan Zimmerman play on the team at various points in the season. Backup outfielder, that looks like it's going to be a no-problem job for Ryan Church. He had nine home runs and a 287 average, but also Preston Wilson got into a fair amount of games in this team as well with 10 home runs. But I think I got to give this to Ryan Church because the new team probably doesn't want to overspend for a backup outfielder. I had a couple other guys you might have heard of who got into some games out there like Andy Chavez and a winding down career of Jeffrey Hammonds, who got into 13 games that season with the inaugural Washington Nationals. So we shaved our team down bench-wise to Jamie Carroll, Ryan Church, and Gary Bennett. Let's look at that pitching staff. Your rotation was Levon Hernandez, Esteban Loaiza, John Patterson, Tony Armas, and Ryan Dries. Chad Cordero was your closer with Hector Carrasco, Gary Majewski, Louis Alea, and Joey Eichen helping out as well. They had a fair amount of pitchers get into games. They, in fact, had one guy, Tomo Oka, who pitched in 54 innings. They also had Zach Day, John Roush, Sunwoo Kim, and Mike Stanton, along with John Halama, all get into at least 20 innings, while a number of players also appearances. Was there some help at AAA if they decided to bring some guys along a little quicker? Which I'm surprised they didn't, because this is kind of getting close to the era of big bullpens. I had a number of guys who made the major leagues playing for the New Orleans Zephyrs, including Jason Bergman, Bill Bray, Roy Corcoran, Mark DeFelice, Chad Durbin, and Joe Horgan. I also had a couple guys who pitched okay that didn't make the major leagues, like Kip Bucknight, Jason Bowers, and Donnie Bridges. Was there anyone at AA they could have sped along? Yeah, there were a few options down there. Sal Rivera was down there, and so was Daryl Rassner. A couple guys who had major league careers, but not great ones. But they also had a couple guys who didn't make the majors, who pitched all right. David Mouse kept his ERA at 232 in 26 games. John Ogletree went 1-0 with a 2.45 ERA, and David Gill also got into 14 games, keeping his ERA at 303. And just like the Texas Rangers... There was one minor league team who hung on to their old name. And again, you have to go to short season class A-ball to find the Vermont Expos. Yeah, they kept the name, but did anybody from the Vermont Expos make the majors? Actually, yeah, three of their pitchers did make the trip. Craig Stamen, Marco Estrada, and John Lannon all eventually made the majors, but none of their hitters made the jump to the major leagues. The Vermont Expos would change their name, of course, in the following season. In 2006, they would be known as the Vermont Lake Monsters. And while I like the name Expos, I gotta admit, the Vermont Lake Monsters is kind of a cool name. And that wraps up this week's episode of Bullpen. What'd you think? Did I make the right calls on those tiny, tiny benches? What about those bullpens? Don't forget to drop a line if you have an idea, and tune in again next week. We'll take a look at Cleveland, the movie years. We'll take a look at the real-life Cleveland Indians, the years that both Major League and Major League 2 came out, and we'll see how those teams would have been different in the era of big bullpens and whatever Charlie Sheen is right now. 
I want to thank my patrons on Patreon. You can find me at Just Russ Productions. You can also find more of my work on YouTube by searching Russ Barrett or looking for Russ Barrett on TikTok if you would like shorter bits of my content. But if you enjoyed this show, be sure to check in again next week for Bullpen. All roster and statistical information provided by BaseballReference.com.